Well, if you're new with us, you should know that this morning we're continuing a sermon series in which we are following the family history of God's covenant people, Israel, during the time of Joseph. Joseph, remember, was a son of Jacob, a.k.a. Israel, and a great-grandson of Abraham. Abraham is this guy to whom Yahweh, the God of Israel, has promised to give offspring as numerous as the sands of the sea. And not only that, Yahweh tells Abraham that he's going to bless all the nations through this offspring. And as if that weren't already enough, we know because we've been following the story from the first page of the Bible that this is the shape of God's plan to redeem the whole cosmos, to renew creation, heaven and earth. Now, Yahweh's promise to Abraham is nothing less than his plan to set right all that humanity has fatally corrupted by arrogating to itself the dignity of deity. It's Yahweh's plan to redeem the cosmos, beginning with this dysfunctional family. So Joseph's story, you see, plays out in the great drama of God's fulfillment of his covenant promise to Abraham that all the nations of the earth should be blessed through his offspring on the way to the redemption of the whole created order. Well, that's where we've been. That's the storyline we've been talking about, but just there is the problem, isn't it? Because that's very far from what Joseph seems to be experiencing at the end of chapter 40. Last week, we saw Joseph hit rock bottom. And although we read time and again, Yahweh favored Joseph, Yahweh favored Joseph, that hardly did anything to defang his circumstances. Joseph had, without a doubt, heard of Yahweh's covenant promise to his great-granddaddy since he was knee-high to a grasshopper. But of course, he's experiencing something entirely different. He's been thrust down, right? Down three times. First, down into the pit, literally at the hands of his brothers. Then down into slavery at the hands of the the Ishmaelite uh, slave traders. And then finally, down now into prison on the unjust charges of Potiphar's wife. And this is the thing. The end of chapter 40 doesn't alleviate Joseph's misery one iota. In fact, if, if... we could overhear Joseph praying at the end of chapter 40, the most likely words that we could have found on his lips would have been the end of Psalm 88, that bleak verse. You, the psalmist says to God, distanced lover and neighbor from me, my friends, utter darkness. That's the end of Psalm 88. Last week with Joseph in prison, the screen just fades to black. And the next thing we see in our reading this morning, Genesis chapter 41, verse 1, is a caption come up on that screen. Two years later. And now the story picks back up, but not with Joseph. Instead, we wake up on the banks of the Nile. We see a man, but it isn't Joseph. Joseph is ratty and bearded and disheveled. This man is clean-shaven, well-groomed, well-nourished. It's Pharaoh. Here's the leader 
of a world superpower. He is the top of the political and cultic food chain. This guy is where it's at. And after all, everybody knows. This man is divine. He certainly knows it. What could possibly go wrong? Well, at first, the dream that we wake up into looks quite pleasant, doesn't it? The Nile uh, is the source of all life in Egypt. It's the lifeline of the Egyptian economy. I mean, it's a bit like the Dow this past week. You just see tick, 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 tick in the green. When it's good, all's well. So naturally, when Pharaoh hears a sound coming from the Nile, he leans in, and, and suddenly here come seven fat, attractive cows, one after another. And seeing them grazing on the reeds, Pharaoh finds it pleasant. The sight of the cows is reassuring. It steadies him. He settles into the dream the way that a child settles into her parents' arms. He's safe. It's his birthday, after all, the day when an Egyptian ruler ought to be reminded of his divine stature, his surpassing wisdom, his immutable good fortune, the stability and the security of the world over which he presides as Lord and God. Happy birthday, Pharaoh. But then suddenly, it's like that, it's like the scene in if you've seen Infinity War, the first time that you know, Thanos shows up at, at the planet of Vormir, where he's out for the Soul Stone. You know, this weird, dreamlike atmosphere suddenly kicks in. Things become sinister, and like all the worst sorts of nightmare, this pleasant vision, just without a moment's warning, unleashes hell. Hardly before the seventh cow comes up from the Nile, the first of seven new cows arise. But these, these cows are thin. And they're gaunt. and They're ugly. And notice the ominous little note in verse 3. What did the fat cows do when they came up out of the water? It's just like we read back in chapter 37 when the young shepherd boy Joseph takes his, uh, his uh, animals out to pasture. They graze. The fat cows graze. Not so with the gaunt cows. These cows come and stand by the fat cows. They don't graze. Because as Pharaoh is just about to learn, these cows are carnivores. Before Pharaoh even knows what is happening, these seven zombie cows come up like that scene, all of those scenes, there's not just one, in The Walking Dead where everybody's just sort of sitting around cooking sausages on the fire and they see people stumbling up out of the distance. They're like, hey, come have some sausages. And it turns out they're actually zombies and that's what's happening, right? These seven zombie cows just come up right on the coattails, as it were, of the seven healthy cows and devour them. And this hellish picture sends Pharaoh screaming back into consciousness in a cold sweat, his heart racing, his muscles clenched, his jaw clenched, breathing hard and fast. But Pharaoh falls asleep again. And again he dreams, not this time of cows, but of grain, the other, uh, the other white meat, the other staple of Egypt's economy. And again, there's a picture of plenty. A picture of grain, by the way, that recalls Joseph's dream of his brother's sheaves deferring to his sheaf. Remember that back, Joseph's, Joseph's dream? Only in Pharaoh's dream. Instead of deferring 
to the fine grain, the way that Joseph's brother's sheaves deferred to his sheaf. The blighted grain launches a violent mutiny against the fine grain, swallowing it up. And Pharaoh awakes in verse 8. His spirit was troubled. And the phrase here literally means his spirit pounded. Not just when he wakes up, but even in the morning when his servants come back in. Physically, he feels out of control. His heart's beating like a hammer on an anvil. Here's, Here's a man who's not used to bad news who is unaccustomed to surprises, being forced, if we're reading faithfully between the lines, by Yahweh, to face the fraudulence of his presumption to stand as the divine guarantor of Egyptian imperial prosperity. This is an unwelcome message to a man who's not supposed to receive unwelcome messages. So Pharaoh, all in a panic, summons the custodians of Egyptian wisdom, the wise men, the magicians. Now, by the way, when you come across magicians in the Bible, you could do much worse than to think of C.S. Lewis as the magician's nephew, where you have Uncle Andrew. And if, if you know the story, then, then you know, and I'm not ruining anything because you really all should have read this by now. <laughs> Uncle Andrew is there on the day that Narnia is created by Aslan. This weird, sinister uncle of Diggory. And he discovers that when he drops in a bit of steel from our world into the soil, that out sprouts this lamppost, which of course comes up later, doesn't it? And he begins to think to himself, imagine what I could do. I could, I could build ships. I could grow ships. I could sell ships. Imagine all the things that I could do with my enterprise, my know-how, and this soil. That is the M.O. of magicians in the scripture. It is twisting nature to meet human ends. It's making nature conform to us, you see. That's what magicians are about in the Bible. So these magicians, these wise men, come to Pharaoh, and verse 9, Pharaoh tells them his dreams, but there was none who could interpret them. Isn't it amazing? These people who major on twisting and manipulating things can't interpret Pharaoh's dream. Now, one wonders if this is just because these guys have a healthy fear for their lives. I mean, after all, who wants to tell a megalomaniac with delusions of grandeur that they're not divine? I mean, Christians have been doing this sort of thing for 2,000 years. But the result has rarely been the megalomaniac responding, Oh, gee, thanks, now that you mention it. I guess I had gotten a bit mixed up. No, with a couple of exceptions, and there are a couple of exceptions, things don't work out that way in the Bible. People who worship themselves don't like it when their religion is challenged. That's especially true of Pharaoh. Well, why would that be? Well, we have a hint in the timing of this whole dream sequence. Didn't you, have you noticed that all of chapters 40 and 41, even though they span two years, all center directly on or right around Pharaoh's birthday? 
The Hebrew of verse 1 is literally after two years of days, which is to say exactly two years later. Remember, we read back in Genesis chapter 40, verse 20, that Pharaoh threw a great feast on his birthday, and the dreams of his two servants, the chief cupbearer and the chief baker, come true. The chief uh, cupbearer is restored to his place in Pharaoh's court. The chief baker is impaled. And two years later, apparently, again, on Pharaoh's birthday, Pharaoh receives his other two dreams. His own two dreams, excuse me. Now, this bit of Genesis is the only place in the entire Old Testament when we read of a birthday. 111th birthday. It's the only place where we read of a birthday. We encounter one birthday in the New Testament, by the way. Does anybody want to hazard a guess? Oh, come on now. No, not Jesus. But that's a good guess. I really did set you up to take that fall. There is a birthday celebration. That's it. That's it. It's King Herod, right? When Herodias and Herodias's daughter plot the murder of John the Baptist. Sorry, I really did set you up for the fall with that one. You see, not once in the Bible do we read of an Israelite birthday being treated as an annual holiday. Apparently, birthday celebrations in the Bible seem to be connected with rulers who claim autonomy from Yahweh. And in the Egyptian context, that's precisely what Pharaoh's birthday means. This is the supreme, quintessentially Egyptian holiday. Pharaoh's birthday is the Egyptian Christmas. It's the day when Pharaoh marks his entry into life, and notwithstanding another year passing, celebrates his perennial vitality and glories in his enthronement at the center of the world. Pharaoh's birthday is an occasion calibrated to induce awe in his own self-sufficiency for all the needs and desires of the Egyptian empire. And it's the day that Yahweh chooses to confront him with the news that he is not the Lord and God that he thinks he is. Now, here's where things get interesting. Because suddenly the chief cupbearer remembers. And it's not like he's doing Joseph any favors. He's not mentioned Joseph for two years. We're not told why that is. It might just be because he's, he's already displeased Pharaoh once. He doesn't want to leave any hostages to fortune and get thrown back into prison because of what this Hebrew kid might do. So he, t- he finally tells Pharaoh about Joseph, but in the most kind of derisive way possible. There's this he- Hebrew kid, a slave. You know, he, he, he could have said, oh man, you should see what this guy can do with dreams. He doesn't say anything of the kind. He just drops, he name drops Joseph. And then Quite subtle, but immensely important. Verse 14. Then Pharaoh sent and called Joseph, and they quickly brought him out of the pit. Now, we said before, Joseph has endured three descents, right? Down into the literal pit. Down into slavery. Down into prison. And this is a hint that things are finally turning around for Joseph. He is coming up out of the pit. And he's being brought up here now because the time has come for Yahweh to fulfill the purpose for which he is called 
Joseph. This is the beginning of uh, Yahweh putting his rescue plan into the next stage of action. And so after Pharaoh has told Joseph his dreams, just like Yahweh jumps right into his plan, so does Joseph. Verse 33. This is how Joseph responds after the interpretation. Now therefore... Let Pharaoh select a discerning and wise man and set him over the land of Egypt. And then it's almost like we're stuck in an echo chamber because Pharaoh responds to Joseph's plan in verse 39 this way. Since God has shown you all this, Pharaoh says to Joseph, there is none so discerning and wise as you are. Now, by now, most of you have heard enough sermons on Genesis to know that repetition is the Old Testament's way of uh, writing something in bold print and then underlining it and covering it in a highlighter, right? Repetition is important. So you'll realize that this phrase, discerning and wise, there's something going on here. Remember that we read this text in several contexts, right? We read it in its immediate context in Genesis, in the generations of Jacob, the story of Abraham's family and of Jacob's sons. We also read it in the broader context of the first five books of the Bible, this literary unit that we call the the Pentateuch. And then finally, we read it in this huge context. We read it with canonical sense as part of the grand biblical narrative that stretches from Genesis 1 to Revelation 22. So when we see this phrase, we begin to wonder, what on earth is the Holy Spirit up to? What's going on? And we don't have to read far until we come to Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 6. And there Moses is speaking to Israel on the other side of the wilderness wandering. And he's commanding them to hold fast to Yahweh and to keep the commandments and statutes which he has taught them. Listen to Moses as he speaks to Israel. Deuteronomy chapter 4 verse 6. Keep these statutes and rules and do them. For that will be your wisdom and discernment in the sight of all peoples. Who when they hear of all these statutes will say, Surely... This great nation is a wise and discerning people. Look, what's going on in this exchange between Joseph and Pharaoh is exactly what Moses says will happen when the people of God embody the wisdom of God in the world of God. As soon as we recognize this huge biblical theme of wisdom, suddenly we're riding this biblical theological wave that carries us from one end of the biblical story to the other. In fact, this theme of wisdom carries us straight back to the beginning of the biblical story. Twice now. Once in Genesis 39, and then again in our chapter today, chapter 41. The Bible casts Joseph as reversing in a, in a shadowy way. The story of the Garden of Eden. In Genesis 39, Joseph is elevated as vice-regent of Potiphar's house. He's set over all that Potiphar has excepting only one thing, the fruit which he couldn't taste, right? Potiphar's wife. Unlike Adam and unlike Eve, Joseph endures the temptation, walking with Yahweh in faithfulness. And in the same way, in chapter 41, Joseph is set over all that Pharaoh has, the whole empire of Egypt. Notice again, one thing prohibited. Verse 40, 
only as regards the throne will I be greater than you. So why in both instances? Why single out the forbidden fruit? Potiphar's wife, the throne. It's because these are echoes of Eden. And why is this significant? It's significant because of what lured Adam and Eve into eating the fruit in the first place. Genesis chapter 3, verse 6. So the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise. At the beginning of the Bible, you see, we read that God has given Adam and Eve these two particular trees, the tree of life from which they could and needed to eat, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil from which they couldn't and shouldn't eat. Now, one of the things that makes the fall so relatable is that the root of this temptation to break fellowship with God was the desire to attain the wisdom of God apart from the presence of God, to act in the world apart from His acts, to reduce goodness to arbitrary commands that we can manipulate, that we can be magicians about. Rather than growing to know and love the good, by knowing and loving the good that God is. The fall was a declaration of independence from God. It was an attempt to acquire wisdom apart from him, to pit the wisdom of man over against the wisdom of God. The fall made our relationship with God a zero-sum game. He has to decrease so that we may increase. The irony here is that the tree of life is an invitation to partake of God's wisdom. It's not like God is setting up an either-or and he's offering a choice between blissful, holy ignorance in his presence and wisdom apart from him. No, the garden offered two kinds of wisdom. Wisdom in relationship with God, that's the tree of life, and wisdom severed from God, wisdom on our own terms, independent from God, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now, that's why in Proverbs, lady wisdom is described as a tree. Proverbs chapter 3, verse 18, wisdom is a tree of life to those who lay hold of her. Now, let me rein this in. This is my point. What we are seeing in this exchange between Joseph and Pharaoh is the collision of two wisdoms. Wisdom with God and wisdom apart from God. And what we have in Joseph, therefore, is not only a moral exemplar of how to get a little wiser. And that's not, that's not the point of this sermon. What we have in Joseph is a foreshadowing of a new way to be human. And it's no accident that Genesis hints that this new way of being human is to be king-shaped. Look at verse 42. Then Pharaoh took his signet ring from his hand and put it on Joseph's hand and clothed him in garments of fine linen and put a gold chain or collar around his neck. And then he made him ride in his second chariot. Uh, so sort of if Pharaoh drives uh, a Maserati, this is his Aston Martin. It's like the runner-up. And they called out before him, kiss the sun. Oh, excuse me, that's the wrong verse. Bend the knee. Well, it's interesting that we would go to Psalm 2, isn't it? In Joseph, what else are we seeing but a glimpse of the one whose just and righteous 
reign will one day restore the whole cosmos to fruition and to faithfulness under God's loving lordship. We've seen in Joseph a prophet. That's the whole point of his interpreting all these dreams. And we've seen in him a priest. I mean, no, no Hebrew is going to listen to these scriptures and not think when they hear of a fair linen of the Levitical priest's priestly garments. We have a prophet, we have a priest, but we also have a king. In this wise and discerning Joseph, the Joseph to whom all Egypt bends the knee, we have a foreshadowing of the coming king to whom every knee will bow. The very king, in fact, promised by the prophet Isaiah. Listen to this, Isaiah 11. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. And the spirit of Yahweh shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and discernment, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of Yahweh, and his delight shall be in freedom from Yahweh. Wait, no. His delight shall be in the fear of Yahweh. Now, here's the thing. There is no way for any of us to turn around and implement the wisdom of God in our lives without first understanding how the wisdom of God applies to you and to me in the context of the church. We can't turn around and live a king-shaped wisdom except in the context of a people united to the king. That's really the point of this sermon. I don't want to send you away asking, how do I become wiser in my finances or in my relationships or whatever. I do want you to think about that. And at small group on Wednesday, you'll have a chance to. But right now, my point is to show us that even the desire to attain wisdom independent from the king, that's the point of the trees. It has to happen. We only acquire true wisdom in the context of the people who are united to the king. Remember when Jesus asked Peter, who do you say that I am? In between the lines of that question, he's asking, do you believe that I'm the king? Do you believe that my spirit is the spirit of wisdom and discernment? Now, if Peter answers yes, he knows the goal is to have the spirit of Jesus poured out into him, and not into him only, but into a people in whom God is demonstrating a new way to be human. And how is God going to demonstrate that new way to be human? We read that in Ezekiel 36. It's the new covenant. I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and I will give you a heart of flesh and I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and to be careful to obey my rules. It's the circumcision of the heart, the law written on the heart. Do you see how this works though? It's not just about Peter. Peter's confession is the foundation. But it must be the people of God who embody the wisdom of God in the world of God. It must be the church, not a believer in isolation, who's united to Christ and who receives and who lives by the Spirit. Look, if we talk about being united to Christ and receiving the Spirit, being renewed by the Spirit, apart from the context of the church, apart from relationship with fellow believers, it's nonsense. It's like talking about getting married alone. It just doesn't make sense. When we're united to Christ, when the Spirit comes and lives in us and indwells us and circumcises our hearts and writes the law on our hearts and takes the training wheels of the Mosaic law off, 
Not so that we slow down in holiness, but so that we can finally speed up and keep up with Jesus. That happens in the context of the people of God. No one is united to Christ unless they're also united to other Christians. Or at least if we live somewhere in earth where to be in union with other Christians would mean a direct and immediate death, at least desire it and lament that we can't have that yet. You see, the same mentality that wants Christ apart from the church, that's the same mentality that wants wisdom apart from Yahweh. It's the desire to reduce a relationship to a commodity. It's the desire to reduce a family into an opportunity to learn, I don't know, Christian underwater basket weaving. But that's not how God's rescue plan works. No one is united to Christ unless they're united to the church. A king implies a kingdom, and the New Testament calls us just that, a kingdom and priests. You can't have wisdom, this is my point, without the only wise king. And you can't have the king without the kingdom and all those who pray for the kingdom to come. Now let me wrap up. The church, the church is the theater in which God is demonstrating a new way of being human. Not, I assure you, by making any one of us in this room the model for true wisdom. God help us. He is fashioning for himself a people of God who embody the wisdom of God in the world of God. He's creating a people who repudiate the fraudulent wisdom of Egypt, who refuse to set ourselves up as Lord and God over our own universes. And listen, he does so precisely by uniting us to the new Adam himself, the son of David by whose wisdom a Roman instrument of torture, a cross, became the tree of life from which in just a few minutes we are going to be invited to partake by faith and with thanksgiving. Please pray with me.